The promise of a liberal arts education has always been the insight offered to us by classic texts about the human experience. Today's guests tell us the appeal is not limited just to traditional students in classrooms, but also students learning in environments as challenging as the American judicial system. Our guests are Emily Allen Hornblower and Nafisa Goldsmith, this week on Story in the Public Square. Hello and welcome to Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. And I'm G. Wayne Miller with the Providence Journal. This week, we're joined by two women with a sincere passion for the value of classic texts. Emily Allen Hornblower is an associate professor of classics at Rutgers University and the author of From Agent to Spectator, witnessing the aftermath in ancient Greek epic and tragedy. And Nafisa Goldsmith is CEO of RISE, which stands for Real Intervention Supports Excellence, a mission-based sustainability initiative that supports at-risk communities. She's currently pursuing a degree in law. Ladies, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having us. So, uh, Emily, there's a lot that we want to talk to in this sort of uh, exploration of the value of classic texts, but this is something that you've chosen to dedicate your life to studying. What drew you to the classics in the first place? I think what drew me to the classics was that uh, in these ancient myths, and I'm thinking of Greek tragedies, you know, which are 2,500 years old, uh, Homeric epics, the Iliad and the Odyssey, written down, uh, put into writing, I should say, in the 8th century BC, so really old works and stories. Uh, and they present us with characters that are not a squeaky clean Superman. Uh, so when we're, when we're reading these stories about heroes who uh, accomplish great things, but also make huge mistakes and costly ones, um, stories that foreground fallibility and vulnerability, uh, showing that those who can do the best can also sometimes do the worst. There's something so profound about that. Um, and not alienating, not demonizing, but humanizing. And it's completely fascinating and I think also really essential. Uh, and this comes across, you know, for example, in the, in the Iliad, it's a war between the Greeks and the Trojans, but the Trojans are not dehumanized. They are not demonized. They are not other. They are like the Greeks. Uh, you come to love Hector the way you love Achilles. Uh, they love, they strive, they fail, they die. And the idea that a poem about a war and a Greek victory could end with the Trojan side lamenting, I think carries tremendous weight um, and something that we, would, we should certainly pay attention to in these very divisive times of not demonizing the other camp because they have a different agenda. But what, I don't wanna say how old were you, but how old were you? Uh, when you had this, when you came to appreciate classics, was this something that you were introduced to in high school, in college? Where, where did that affinity begin? I was raised in France and I started Latin very early uh, in sixth grade. So I guess I was 10 years old and I loved the complexity of the language and the puzzle. 
Um, but there's a saying that Latin marches and Greek dances, and I just sort of <laughs> feeling I would love apologies to all the Latinists. Uh, I am a Hellenist. Uh, I had a feeling I would love Greek, and I had a very Socratic figure uh, in high school uh, who taught intensive Greek. Uh, he had lost a leg in a boating accident, and he 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 had a beard, uh, and he was in his wheelchair. And all of us, you know, at this difficult, uh, awkward teenager phase, would just gravitate towards him and want to hear more about uh, him and his, his stoicism and also his love of these incredible texts. So that was my uh, entry into it and I, I never left. So Nafisa, what, what drew you to the classics? And maybe you can also relate whether it started in youth or, or more recently. I would say my attraction started in youth and it started with Clash of the Titans. Um, that was just, amazing for me to see those characters and specifically uh, the one that frightened me the most which was Medusa. Um, I wanted to know more and so over time growing up you know you pick up books and you're reading and you're taking yourself through those adventures and it wasn't until um, later on when, when I met Emily that she presented it to me and I'm like wow absolutely like you know this is something that I've always been uh, attracted to. However, to be able to uh, have conversations around not just the text, but how it applies to uh, just many different aspects of modern day life. It's, it's just a, a necessary conversation to have. And it's, it's also quite healing. Were, were you in high school when that interest began or does it even predate high school? It predates high school. Um, I would say wow. somewhere around maybe six or seven uh, when I when I saw that. Um, yeah. So. So how did how did you uh, and Emily get to work together? You, you come from different backgrounds, obviously, but now you have a, a profound commonality. How, how did that tell us that story? And then maybe Emily, you can weigh in as well. well sure. Then, Go ahead, Nikisa. <laughs> well, I was a, I was a student um, at Rutgers. Um, I am a, a New Jersey Step student, and so that uh, allows individuals who are formerly incarcerated to be able to get their earn their degrees through um, a consortium here of, of universities in the state. And uh, Emily was someone who not only taught inside, but she has this great passion for the classics. And when she presented me with the opportunity to be able to have these discussions with her. It was like a, a no-brainer, um, really, because this isn't an everyday topic, right? People aren't going around talking about Medea and Heracles, and that's just not it. But it it really should be, right? It's a it's a space where we can allow everyday people to be able to understand the classics in a different way. You know, picking up the text is a little more, I would say, complex versus having these discussions and being able to weigh in from different aspects. Emily being an ap academic and myself being a, a student in life and, and lover of uh, the classics and all things history, so, yeah. So, Emily, I mean, so, you know, Nafisa hinted at that there. You, you, you're, you're a professor of classics at one of America's great public universities, but you also teach the classics in the New Jersey uh, prison system. Uh, how did you come to find yourself working there? 
I heard about it serendipitously. Uh, I was reading an article in the Rutgers student paper uh, written by a formerly incarcerated student who was part of the Mountain View program that Nafisa was a part of uh, when she completed her BA, which enables students who have done some time on the inside to then complete their degrees at Rutgers. And he talked about um, how his sister had put him through school. Uh, he'd gotten his GED behind bars and he was very passionate about um, his work uh, at Rutgers and continuing and he also mentioned that he was still tutoring behind bars. So I, I met with him, I wanted to hear more, and I learned so much, including about uh, the program, New Jersey Steps, Scholarship and Transformative Education in Prisons. And I realized that uh, there was actually an opportunity to go in and teach full semester college courses behind bars. And I went into, I've been doing it for six years now, and I've done it in two different men's prisons, medium and, and maximum security. And we uh, did some history and some literature uh, and always some classics. And let me tell you, uh, you know, back to what Nafisa was saying, it, it, it should be a part of every conversation, not as a luxury, not as um, a polished liberal arts education. The classics have been the purview of the happy few and the elites for far too long. And they have this power to elicit crucial conversations about the humanity that we all share. And this really becomes apparent when I, when I go in and we talk about Greek tragedies and we discuss these heroes and um, the role of fate and the gods and uh, extenuating circumstances, is that what it is? Or is it just a broader view of how profoundly vulnerable and fallible every human is? There's a really deep implication in that that strikes my students uh, on the outside and of course on the inside that if all of us are just one hair width away from being hit by tragedy, by downfall, by loss, by tremendous mistakes, then surely we owe each other the ability to say, that could be me at any moment. And this is something that is actually brought out on stage in a play. Uh, so Sophocles is Ajax. At the beginning, Ajax is second only to Achilles. He rescued the corpse of Achilles from the battlefield when he was killed. Did he get the armor? No. The leaders decided to give it to Odysseus. So he goes into a rage. He feels that he's being, his entire existence and meaning are being denied. And he tries to kill the Greek leaders, Agamemnon and Menelaus, and he tries to torture Odysseus. So Athena, who loves Odysseus, as you may well know, protects him, jumps in, and makes Ajax go mad and torture a bunch of animals instead. And she invites Ajax to come and watch. I'm sorry, she invites uh, Odysseus to come and watch with her. Look, Ajax thinks he's torturing you, but I've blinded him with madness, and now he's torturing animals. And Odysseus, instead of sort of grabbing the popcorn and joining in on the show, says, I actually pity him, not in the condescending sense. Um, the ancients really use that in the mean of compassion, uh, as in suffering with. He says that I see the power of the gods in human life, and that could be me. And this is a, this is a message that I think grabs everyone, and especially if you have an, an existence that is defined by being warehoused because of perhaps one moment in your life when a, a, a wrong step was taken, it resonates to a degree that is extremely powerful and contemporary, as Nafisa was saying.
We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard four times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at J.M. Lutis. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist with the Providence Journal and the author of 19 books. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. And our guests this week are Emily Allen Hornblower, an associate professor of classics at Rutgers University and the author of From Agent to Spectator, Witnessing the Aftermath of Ancient Greek Epic and Tragedy. Joining her is Nafisa Goldsmith, the CEO of RISE, which stands for Real Intervention Supports Excellence, a mission-based sustainability initiative that supports at-risk communities. Together, they are helping us understand the enduring power of classic texts, even in the modern world. So, so you found a very receptive audience behind bars, I'm guessing, from what you just said. And people who, who probably just ate this up and, and related to it. Talk about that. I mean, it must have been eye-opening for some people as, as well as for you. Exactly. I think that that's crucial, too, is that uh, I am learning so much. And I discover so much in these plays when I go in and teach them. Um, and from those who are uh, currently experiencing uh, the devastating impact of and dehumanizing impact of mass incarceration. So uh, the, the topics that come up and that come out of these plays um, are always new, always fresh and always burning issues. So to give you an example, uh, we've all just been uh, through and to some extent are continuing to go through uh, an experience that is painful of, of isolation, of lack of human touch, lack of human contact, uh, lack of human communication, the way we've known it for so long. And so with COVID and everything that has come with it, we're experiencing to an infinitesimal degree the devastating human impact that being warehoused and set aside can have on an individual. The Greeks have a play about that. <laughs> Sophocles' Philatides is about a hero traveling to Troy, right? The Greeks all go to Troy, the face that launched a thousand ships. And uh, one of the men, uh, while they stop over on an island, his name is Philoctetes, accidentally steps on a, on a sacred serpent and gets wounded and he becomes loud and smelly and inconvenient uh, and just bad for troop morale, I guess. So they decide to just leave him there on the island like a tool. You're no longer useful, there you go. And then they find out that nine years into the Trojan War, they actually need him. They find out from a prophet to take Troy. So there's a turn there where the one that was labeled as nothing and a social pariah turns out to be essential to the survival of the community. There's so much there. And it's a play that has a cast of only men. But when I read it with Nafisa, when we started doing these public conversations that we've been doing, bringing the classics to the broader audience, I said, does this play uh, about war and all about men uh, resonate with you at all, this, this lack of human touch? Um, and, and the answer was, was mind-blowing and, and deeply moving. And Nafisa, could you speak to that? Oh, absolutely. Um, when 
we have experienced that feeling of loss, those of us who grieve. Um, and when we have experienced that feeling of, I don't have anyone, it's, it pales in comparison to being imprisoned and the people who were once your support system or the people who you once were so supportive of are no longer there for you. It's like um, a phrase that's used uh, amongst those of us who are incarcerated. It's, excuse me. <coughs> sorry. That's okay. <coughs> it's a feeling of being left for dead. That, that feeling is not something that's easy to overcome because you start wondering, what did I do? Uh, or you begin to become bitter and angry. And you say, you know what, I, I don't care. When in reality, you really do. And sometimes it takes, um, it takes a good look at yourself and your situation. And when I think about uh, Philip Tides, I think about the smell that stench and how for him his focus was on that wound and it seems that the more he focused on the wound and and how that wound was a result of him being where he was it seemed that it was difficult for him to heal until there was someone who came even though it was trickery even though it was under the guise of you know something else it started to make him feel like, you know what, maybe I can still become a part of what I once was, a part of that society, a part of that community that I felt like threw me away. And now we begin to heal. Um, it really resonated with me uh, because Philip Tides and myself, for me, the wound was having that stigma of being a convicted felon and constantly thinking about that. It began to stink uh, and it caused other people around you to not wanna be around you because no one wants to hear about you complaining about your condition. It's only when you come to the realization that it doesn't have to stay this way. I can still be a part of, I still have worth. I still have value. And um, I see that just through that one particular piece, once he discovered that he still had value, that's when things started to, to come together. And just to go back on, you know, what Emily said about Odysseus with, you know, him saying, you know, I pity him, you know, I, I can see the power of the gods. and that could easily be me. It, it makes me think about something that um, correction officers say often, you know, when they speak to individuals who are incarcerated and they'll say, it could have been me. Or they'll say, by the grace of God, there go I. These are themes that they, they, they're constantly played out just in different uh, ways in, in, in everyday life. Afisa, Emily talked about the dehumanizing conditions 
of incarceration, and you endured those. You endured even uh, an extreme example of that, if I have this correct, and that is you were in solitary confinement for some period of time. Uh, do I have that correct? And, yes. And what was that like? It, it seems beyond dehumanizing. I have written about solitary confinement for the Providence Journal, and the people who have experienced it are, it's, it's just horrible. I, I don't know how else to explain it. Talk about that, if only briefly, because that seems to be an important part of your road to where you right. are today, too. As children, some of us were sent to our room when we were being chastised or disciplined. Um, and you're sent to your room. But what if you lock that child in a room and you fed that child through a food port in the door and you only allowed that child out uh, to bathe maybe twice a week um, you only let that child out to get sunlight uh, maybe uh, three times during the week um, if the authorities knew that you were treating your child like this, you'd be in prison. It's easy for society to throw away um, our members, especially when we feel as though they have wronged society. And to throw people away and then throw them away while <laughs> they are uh, in prison, which is to put them in solitary confinement and to lock them in a cell and to hardly feed them. And then the food you feed them is totally inadequate. Um, you have some people who are in cells that don't even have running water. Um, it's tragic. It is diabolical. You cannot have a dog and not, and, and, and take care of it the way that our society does individuals who are incarcerated. If you did, you know, the humane society would be called. How can we so easily throw away our citizens because we feel as though they've committed some sort of an offense? And when we throw them away, we totally forget about them and we don't even consider the conditions in which they are living in. Um, I'll never forget what it was like to be behind those metal doors. I can smell it, you know, I can taste the metallic taste of the water that comes out of that metal faucet. Um, I can just still hear the keys as they come down the corridor, the loud echo that, that you hear. Um, I can still hear the screams of people saying they want their medication, people who have mental health um, issues and, and they're screaming they need their medication. I, I can still hear all of these things. And this is something that I experienced in 2006. Yeah, you know, I, 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 so much of this conversation um, in my mind uh, makes me think of the, of the word compassion. And Emily, when we talked before taping, you used an expression, you talked about compassion as a civic duty. I wonder if you could speak to that here now. Um, 
you know, the, the word compassion uh, means suffering with, and uh, it's not just, I think, a civic duty, but an imperative. And this is something that comes out um, in many of the Greek tragedies that we've been discussing. In Philoctetes, as we've said, right, the kind of utilitarian approach of using another human being like a tool destroys the fabric of society. It, 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 it destroys the individual and the community and everyone involved, discarding human beings like they are nothing, the way Philoctetes is and the way Medea is, I'm gonna to turn to Medea in a moment, is, is degrading and dehumanizing for all involved. And what happens when someone is put in a position where they are told that they have no worth and they are discarded and they don't have a support network. It's incredible that there's a play from 2,500 years ago written by a male, Euripides, the tragic playwright, uh, performed by men, uh, mostly for an audience of men, and yet several of these plays have a central female character. Not a monstrous, out of control, hysterical character, but in the case of Medea, um, Everybody knows the story of Jason and the Argonauts. Um, maybe you don't realize that Medea was a, a princess who helped him. She had special powers to get the golden fleece and achieve her goals. She did everything for Jason and then he brought her back to Greece. Uh, they were married, they had small children and then she became inconvenient. He needed to marry the local princess. So he effectively discards her. And here's a play where instead of showing us uh, uh, a woman losing it and, and stigmatizing uh, female anger, it lets you into the inner workings of her mind and you see her through those who are sympathetic to her and you see the process whereby she gradually comes to feel so powerless and um, unrecognized and discarded that she does the unspeakable, uh, the self-destructive and the destructive. Medea kills her children. And Nafisa and I talk about this so much because first off, there are some real life Medeas, but second and more importantly, the question that this play goes right to the core of is, how do you, what happened to a human being? How much did they suffer to get to that point? Is she monstrous at that point or is she at her most human? And the fact that the play shows that the rage, the uncontrollable rage that she gets to starts with righteous indignation and then alienation really goes right to the core of what you can do to human beings when you put them in such a position where they have nothing to lose uh, and effectively perhaps lose their humanity. Nafisa, what do you think? Is Medea a, a, a monster in, in that moment? Um, what, what happens? What, why, why is that play so disturbing and provocative and also interesting in terms of putting forward women's condition? Um, and so many of the women behind bars, uh, you've told me, are there actually because of men. You've got about 30 seconds, Nafisa. Got you. Medea is not a monster. What we learn from listening to the chorus is that there is a gradual process of her going through the mourning of her relationship 
the grief of her relationship, the feeling of being disrespected and inadequate and not enough after she's given up everything, you know, for the love of her life, only to turn around and just be once again abandoned, thrown away. She is not a monster. She is a woman scorned. And we have all heard hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Now, the way she went about it, you know, um, there, there's a lot to be said with that. And like you said, there are modern day Medeas and each woman has a story. It doesn't make her a monster. Do we call men who commit the same acts monsters? Or do we say, this is somebody who had enough and he snapped? It's a powerful, it's a powerful question. And unfortunately, it's where we need to leave you. But I want to thank you, uh, Emily Allen Hornblower and Nafisa Goldsmith for sharing these classic stories with us this week. That is all the time we have this week. But if you want to know more about Story in the Public Square, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter or visit PellCenter.org where you can always catch up on previous episodes. For G. Wayne Miller, I'm Jim Lutis asking you to join us again next time for more Story in the Public Square.